Welcome to ShipIt.show, a podcast about ops, infrastructure, and keeping it simple. Today, we talk with two lovely folks from Transistor.fm, Jason Pearl, senior software developer, and John Buddha, co-founder. I was curious to find out about their setup. How did it change with the launch of the new podcast website builder? And what works for Transistor FM? After all, you have been hearing me talk about our setup for years. So it was high time to challenge some of my assumptions and learn how another team is solving similar problems. TLDL, keeping it simple, is at the root of smooth operations and stable systems. Fastly is a smooth and stable CDN for us. They serve over 90% of all changelog requests straight from their edges with minimal latency. Learn more at fastly.com. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Acuity, a new platform that brings fully managed Argo CD and enterprise services to the cloud or on-premise. And I'm here with two of the co-founders from Acuity, Jesse Suen and Alexander Matusenchev. So the Acuity platform is in beta right now. You guys have some big ideas you're executing on around Argo CD, managed Argo CD, Kubernetes native application delivery, and the power of GitOps. Help me understand the what and the why of what you're doing right now. So we started Acuity because we saw what was happening in the Kubernetes community, the challenges that people were facing about developer experience. And having run Argo CD for into it for a couple of years, we knew it took like a small team to build this and scale it and provide a performant solution for the developers. And so at Acuity and the Acuity platform, what we're trying to do is the first thing we're trying to do is actually provide Argo CD as a fully managed solution to our users. But that is just actually the start of things. And we actually want to take the next steps on improving the whole GitOps and developer experience and providing new tools and ecosystems around Argo and Argo project. Yeah, that's right, JC. So Argo CD is just the beginning, but every company eventually needs way more tools integrated into the DevOps platform. And that's what we're hoping to deliver with Acuity platform. So we're hoping to provide a great user interface that enables developers to achieve what they need in a matter of just a few clicks. But we also want to make Argo CD enterprise ready. What that means is our customers would get audit and insightful analytics out of the box without configuring anything. That's what we did at Intuit and we learned that it was not so easy to do. And that's what we're hoping to solve for multiple organizations. Very cool. Thank you, Jesse. Thank you, Alex. Again, listeners, this is a closed beta. Check it out. Acuity.io slash changelog. Head there and see what this platform is all about. Again, acuity.io slash changelog. Links are in the show notes. So our listeners have been hearing me talk about the changelog.com ops and infra for a bunch of years now. And as fun as it is for me, I also like to mix it up. I'm a fan of a big story, of a long story, you know, that keeps uh, twisting and turning. But I'm also curious, and especially in the last few months, I've been growing curious to know how others are doing it, how others are running the ops and infra behind podcasts. And with that in mind, I'm super happy to welcome Jason and John today from Transistor FM. Welcome. Thanks. Hello. Thanks for having us. So I've been a longtime subscriber to Justin's newsletter, at least 2018, but I'm sure it's been actually even like a few years before. And that's how I've been following the Transistor FM journey from the idea to its creation. I know, John, that you and Justin, you kicked it off. And uh, it's been great to see that happen. So tell us more about that journey for you, John. How did it start? Why Transistor FM? Take it away. It started back in 2017. I was working at a different company. Uh, I was working for Cards Against Humanity, actually in Chicago. And I had previously worked on a podcasting platform back in 2013, I think it was, for a couple of years. And that kind of didn't turn out great from my end. And Cards Against Humanity was doing a, a holiday project that they did every year. 
And part of that was having a podcast. They were going to record a podcast and, and sponsor it for a year. It was the Good News podcast, which was just all good news because at the time, and I mean, it's still happening, but news was terrible. Mm-hmm. So instead of them signing up with a different podcast provider, I had wanted to actually get back into podcast hosting anyway. So I sort of just like had been hacking around on some code and trying to build something again. And I sort of told them that if I could finish enough of it by the time they wanted to launch it, they could just use that one. So that was sort of where it started. And that was just me. And then Justin reached out to me early 2018. And we'd been friends for a while and wanted to work together. We met, I don't know, back in like 2015, I think, Mm -hmm. at a conference, stayed in touch. And he'd been wanting to sort of put his energy towards building something else and, and, you know, trying to start the year and build something new and, and work on a product. And so he asked me if, if like I wanted to partner up and do this thing. And I initially was very hesitant just because like I kind of had been burned in the past with partners and kind of wanted to try to do it on my own. But after thinking for a little bit, I was like, well, I'm a developer. I don't really know how to do marketing and Justin is amazing at it. So it kind of makes sense. And from there, we just kind of took off. We just did a 50-50 split for ownership, signed a bunch of paperwork and made it official and you know, worked on it throughout 2018 and officially launched in August of 2018 with a kind of a testing beta phase before that. Okay. That sounds like a very, I don't know, simple journey in a way. I really like like how real and simple and easy you make it sound. I know there are like so many twists and turns and challenges, but when two people get together, they have an idea say, okay, we're going to make, make this work. Yes, yes, that's it. That's all you need to get going. And then, you know, start dealing with things as they come at you because there's so many things that came at you. I'm sure about that. One of uh, the people that came your way is Jason. So Jason, tell us, how, how did that happen? How did you enter the Transistor FM scene? I lived in Chicago for, I don't know, like a dozen years. I've known John for a good portion of that. We actually wound up working out of the same office for a little bit when myself and a couple friends were working on a video game that we were supporting. John started working out of our office and then John started working at Cards Against Humanity. At some point we wound down the video game project and I took a job with John at, uh, at Cards. And I worked there about a year or so. And then I wound up moving from Chicago to Cleveland, sunny Cleveland, Ohio. So we stayed in touch since then. And I had a job in the interim and we had been talking sort of as John and Justin got Transistor really going. Uh, and it sounded really interesting to me. And I found myself looking for something. I was like contemplating going, uh, looking for like a big tech job. And I was doing like the interview prep and the lead coding and all that nonsense. And John and uh, my friend Mike came to visit me in Cleveland. And we were talking about a, a project to work on. And he jokingly said, hey, you want to come work on it? I'm like, actually, that does sound pretty awesome. So wound up uh, taking a job at Transistor as yeah. uh, the first non-John engineer. Non-John engineer. Okay. That was like almost a year ago, right? Yep. Yeah. Yep. I think uh, it's like 10, 11 months. Yeah. I mean, spe- speaking of things that came along with starting Transistor, like Justin and I both recognized that that was, hiring Jason was like one of the biggest decisions we made. It's the probably the biggest expense we have but completely worth it. Like, it's a little stressful to be like, yeah, should we hire this person, pay them a bunch of money and, you know, hope it works out. And I think those types of things, you just have to like jump in, take a chance. And it's been great. I get to work with friends all day. (laughs) That's okay. How many of you are there now? There's four total. So it's uh, Justin and I and Jason and Helen, who's in England as well. Helen. She does customer support, customer success. Yeah. I was listening to, I think it's episode 135. What's the name of the podcast? Let's see, uh, 135, the SaaS.transistor.fm. Who runs Build Your SaaS? Who runs that podcast? Build yeah. Build Your SaaS. It's Justin and I started it. We basically started it from day one, kind of documenting our process of starting a company together. We were recording like once a week, I think, for a long time, but has since it's kind of slowed down as we've just grown the company and Justin does more interviews now there with other people, but we'll keep doing podcasts together on and off. And then Jason and Helen both hopped on one. And that was a very good episode. And that's basically the, the four of you. That's even like the picture 
for that episode yeah. 135 uh-huh. is, is a great yeah. one. And it's an insight yeah. in how you work, how you get along with one another. That, that was great because people are at the, well, you start with them and you end with them. And then everything else just revolves around them, you know, how they interact, the little, you know, quirks that everyone has and can you make it work, preferences, so on and so forth. So I know that you launched a really big thing recently and that's what got me talking to Justin because I always like wanted to, you know, talk to him. And that was like a perfect excuse. Like, okay, tell me more about the free podcast website builder that was launched. And that's how we started talking even about this episode. I said, okay, but my interest is mostly ops and infra. And Justin said, I know the right two people for you. And that's how he introduced us. Uh, so you launched that. It was, I think, a month ago, two months ago. It was very recent. Yeah, I think it was about a, a month ago. How did the launch go? How was that for you? Yeah, I mean, it's good. Uh, a lot of people signed up. It's an interesting product because it's it kind of spawned from something we're building or, or built for the main product. But it was like an opportunity to to provide something for people that aren't already transistor customers to sort of experience some of the other things that we have to offer. But since since this could function with transistor podcasts or non-transistor podcasts, it, it's like a nice, nice way to do that. But it's gone well. I think we're I think we're approaching like 150 signups. Yeah. Something like that. Okay. I don't think we experienced any major hiccups really with the launch itself. From the outside, I've seen a lot of interest on Product Hunt. I'll add a link to the show notes. We had 7,000 plus subscribers, a lot of interest in it. And I was wondering what impact that launching that have on the platform, on the Transistor FM platform, on the infrastructure, on how you do things, the prep work, like what went into it to roll it out? Specifically for Product Hunt? No, no, no. For like, like the feature, right? Like the whole feature to get it out. What impact did it have on your transistor fm infrastructure was there like any work was there lots of coding what did that look like from your perspective the ones that were building it and then shipping that new feature yeah i mean there was there was a lot of lead up to the launch i wouldn't say the launch itself impacted us much as far as like any problems with traffic or spiking of cpu or database or anything like that but leading up to it It's funny because we actually did a bunch of infrastructure work the weeks before the launch, upgrading, you know, various parts of our infrastructure that we use. That was mostly Jason, yeah. Who did that work? Was it Jason? What did you have to upgrade, Jason? Tell us about it. I think the whole project is interesting because John built and continued to maintain it as as like a sole developer. So a lot a lot of it kind of reflects those decisions, which are which are all great decisions, but it it's not overly complex. So we're hosted on Elastic Beanstalk on AWS. So really it was just kind of upgrading to the latest version because we were on an older one. So there's all kinds of like fiddly little bits, but ultimately it's just kind of updating what John had built previously. This is Elastic Beanstalk or something else? So we're still on Elastic Beanstalk, yep. They switched from, so we were previously on the old version of Amazon Linux. So we had to move to the new mm-hmm. version. So there's like a bunch of, had to switch from upstart to system D and stuff. We also, yeah, upgraded our, we use Caddy as our web server, which provides us like free SSL okay. certificates for the custom domains, which the websites run on. If you want to add your custom domain, you get free SSL. So Caddy V1 or V2? We were on V1 for a long time, which is very old, but it was ro- totally rock solid. We upgraded to V2 and that's also been great. It was like pretty painless. The configuration is like just incredibly simple. I still have some V1s running. Don't tell anyone. Okay. Hopefully no one's listening to this part. <laughs> it ran rock solid for years for us. Same for me. So, but but the V2 upgrade didn't happen part of this launch, right? Like you didn't do like, or like as a run up to it. That happened a while ago. The Caddy V1 to V2. I'm actually forgetting the timing of it. I, I don't know if we were working on it during the launch or we did it right after or right before. I kind of forget. Okay. No, we were doing it, I think, simultaneously. Okay. We had kind of like a little bit of downtime between actually finishing it and launching it. So yeah, this is yeah. this is like something that had been mm. needling us for a while. So we took the opportunity to work. It was one of those things where Amazon kept selling, sending us emails saying that version one of Amazon Linux is going to be deprecated and removed and not supported anymore. And they just kept sending us emails with a date and we're like, eh, we should probably, probably upgrade. It worked. Because you upgraded yeah. it. <laughs> as yeah. annoying as it was, it worked. <laughs> okay. Yeah. There's still some pain points with it, but 
So Caddy got upgraded, Amazon, the Amazon uh, Linux OS got upgraded. Mm -hmm. What else? We upgraded to Rails 7 and we upgraded, along with that, we upgraded to Ruby 3. Okay. Wow. We were on Ruby 2.6 and Rails 6.1 for... Really just a ton of stuff at the same time, which is... Yeah, we did a lot of stuff at once and it honestly, it like worked out pretty well. Like yeah. really, I don't think the site was down. What made you upgrade from like all these versions at once? Like you were, you were just about to launch... What prompted you to upgrade those things? Because you would think that as the closer you get to launch, you want to go with a system that, you know, you've been running for a while mm -hmm. and you're happy with it. You've done some load testing, whatever, whatever, or at least like you are confident in what you run. What prompted the upgrades? And I'm sure it wasn't just the Amazon emails. There must have been other things. It had just been like in the back of our minds for such a long time that we had finished the new websites feature. It was done and it was actually live. We just hadn't launched it yet. Mm -hmm. I think Justin was working on all the marketing pieces for product hunt and everything else. And we had, you know, a week or so to kind of mess around with some new stuff. Yeah. I forget what it was. It was like, we wanted to upgrade rails, but we couldn't because we were on Ruby two six, which wasn't supported by Rails seven. So we had to upgrade anyway, mm -hmm. but you couldn't upgrade the old version of elastic beanstalk to Ruby three without upgrading the entire platform version. So we did that. And then, you know, it was like, well, if Caddy 1 is old, so we might as well upgrade that. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it wasn't the smartest idea, but I mean, it, it came together. You did it. Like, it was like one one big good push, right? And you got them all upgraded and everything is the latest, I'm assuming now, and fully supported, yeah. right? Because I know that Amazon keeps sending emails when they want to stop supporting things and they want to make sure they do everything they can to, you know, make people aware that, hey, unless you upgrade, we will not support this. Right, right. And we, you know, we have a staging environment. So we deployed every, all the new stuff to that first to make sure it worked. And then mm -hmm. with Elastic Beanstalk, you actually just deploy a new application and then sort of just switch the name servers or the, switch the domain to point to the new load balancer. Yeah. And then you're kind of done. So is this Rails app, is it for the whole of Transistor FM or just for the free, for the website builder, for the, sorry, for the podcast website builder? It's the whole app. The whole app, everything. Wow. Okay. We have one app. That's it. That's crazy. Guess who else has a single app, a single monolithic app? We do. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> it just works so easy. It's just so easy. Why did you pick one app? Okay. I shouldn't have told you that. Why did you pick a single app approach, John? Because I think it was your decision, right? To have a single app. Well, it was just me working on it. <laughs> so that's easy. So okay. I didn't want to maintain multiple things. I just didn't feel the need to have multiple little microservices that all talk together. It just is this a, a Chicago thing because people in Chicago like Rails and Ruby on Rails? Is it that or is it something else? <laughs> because of Basecamp, 37 Signals, all that heritage. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it's part of it. Part of it, maybe. Yeah, maybe. I'm just like, I'm just so used to using Rails that mm -hmm. and building things that way. I mean, we sort of had separate apps at Cards Against Humanity for this big like e-commerce and like shipping platform we had. Even that like just wasn't necessary. It was sort of like pre-optimizing for something and it just became kind of a headache i think mm -hmm. after a while like it really didn't need to be separate apps but mostly just because it was me and it was just easier mm -hmm. that's a great answer i don't know if jason agrees with that i think he does i think for the most part I, we, we flirted with the idea of building the free podcast website project in a separate separate project we started that way but ultimately it just made a lot more sense as, as a singular app mm -hmm. so we kind of rolled it back in yeah, I mean, the websites, the free websites are, I mean, it shares the same code, same infrastructure, same, you know, mm -hmm. dashboard layout really as the main app. So it just kind of made sense. Okay. This episode is brought to you by Honeycomb. Find your most perplexing application issues. Honeycomb is a fast analysis tool that reveals the truth about every aspect of your application in production. 
Find out how users experience your code in complex and unpredictable environments. Find patterns and outliers across billions of rows of data and definitively solve your problems. And we use Honeycomb here at Changelove. That's why we welcome the opportunity to add them as one of our infrastructure partners. In particular, we use Honeycomb to track down CDN issues recently, which we talked about at length on the Kaizen edition of the Ship It podcast. So check that out. Here's the thing. Teams who don't use Honeycomb are forced to find the needle in the haystack. They scroll through endless dashboards playing whack-a-mole. They deal with alert floods, trying to guess which one matters. And they go from tool to tool to tool playing sleuth, trying to figure out how all the puzzle pieces fit together. It's this context switching and tool sprawl that are slowly killing teams' effectiveness and ultimately hindering their business. With Honeycomb, you get a fast, unified, and clear understanding of the one thing driving your business, production. With Honeycomb, you guess less and you know more. Join the swarm and try Honeycomb free today at honeycomb.io slash changelog. Again, honeycomb.io slash changelog. How long have you been running the single Rails app? Since late 2017. Right, so since the beginning. Yeah, since the beginning. And you're and you're still on it? Okay. It's the same code base. Yeah, I mean, I can go in and GitHub and look at the first commit. It was like, I don't know, March of 2017 or something. So what was it like for you, Jason, to go into this single code base, single repo, I'm assuming? What was it like to get onboarded with it? It's a pretty standard Rails app. I mean, that's, that's kind of the, the beautiful thing about Rails. Like if you've worked on... One, you sort of know how things are laid out. You know what folders hold what. And I've worked with John before too, so I sort of know I know where the bodies are buried. I see. <laughs> Did you find any? It's not too bad. Are they are they that well hidden or are there no bodies, John? <laughs> Which one is it? <laughs> yeah, there's some bodies. I think you found most of them. It's always interesting being a, a solo developer on an app. It's like you got to get a little little bit vulnerable to like let someone in and just like mm rewrite a bunch of your code and on the flip side of that you gotta tread kind of lightly too yeah yeah i mean i don't you know the things that jason redid are much better let's mm-hmm. just say that there's a lot of things that i just couldn't put the time and effort into because there was just other a lot of other stuff to do so having having jason on board to sort of you know push that along and mm-hmm. and teach me new things too and just make things much better <laughs> it's always easier to do a, a version too like Every, everything John worked on was kind of a blank page, right? So yeah, there were some components that, you know, were ready to, ready to get rebuilt. But yeah, overall, everything worked generally pretty well. So we've just been tightening up things and then adding new features. Yeah. Jason's been writing a lot of tests for things. Jason, okay. will, yeah, he'll come in. He'll come in and work on some part of the app and like write tests for it more than I would have just because I think I was, I don't know, trying to finish it up faster. So it's in a much better place than it was. What about, I mean, I know this This is one thing which I didn't like one bit about Rails and how it used to work. Background workers. Mm-hmm. That used to be so complicated. Like to do background workers properly in Rails was such a pain. And this, I'm talking 10, 15 years ago, roughly, okay. give or take a few. Has that changed much? Has it, is it easier? Do you still struggle with that? I mean, first of all, do you even use background workers? Yeah, we use a lot. Okay. What's it like? I don't know. I personally, I think it's, I think it works pretty well. We use Sidekick on top of Redis as like a queuing system, mm-hmm. which I think Sidekick is still pretty much the go-to for that. I know there's other ones that have come along or have been improved, but I think when I first discovered the background workers, I was like, oh yeah, this is a big improvement mm-hmm. because, you know, Ruby can get slow and Rails can get kind of slow and yeah, I don't know. We have a lot of workers running and we have we have like scheduled jobs that run on basically like cron jobs that run in mm-hmm. Sidekick as well that run every, you know, hour or 10 minutes or five minutes or once a day or all of our audio processing happens in, the, in a background job, API submissions to different podcast directories, like uploading to YouTube and all that mm-hmm. and mailing emails are all, they're all background jobs. So I think it's pretty seamless. I don't know when it got easier necessarily, maybe Rails four or five or something. I mean, certainly when Sidekick came out. I think um, the big announcement was Rails 3 and Ruby 2 when I was doing it. 
I think Ruby 1.8, uh, that's the one which I had most experience in, 1.9, and then 2.0 came along and wow, everything was like, you know, so much better. Yeah. But still, it had its own challenges. And the green threads, I still remember those green threads. Oh my goodness me, like, don't get me started. And then you had like multi, <laughs> like these monoliths running because, you know, they, 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 they couldn't use all the CPUs that were available. And then a bunch of, you know, weird stuff was happening. And then you had like supervisors and then you had... Oh, yeah. Ah, uh, what was it called? Proc... There was a proc file. I forget which one you were using at the time. I know, like a bunch of things are coming back. But again, this yeah, is Yeah, there like, were like Rails observers that oh, that's did as well. something. Oh my goodness. I don't even me. know if those exist, but. Yeah, so it was, it was stuff like that. There were like many things which were making background jobs just complicated. And some people would use were using the database. Uh, I forget what, delay job. Oh my goodness me, delay job was like such a complicated beast. Rescue, I think, is another one. Rescue, that's the one. That's the one that I remember. That was before Sidekick. And I was like, oh, look, there's this cool new thing, Rescue. Oh, but now I need Redis. Oh my goodness me. Okay, so let's set up. What is this Redis thing? And the Redis just came along at the, at the time. That was the time when I was like, you know, in this space. I had my fun. Uh, and then I just moved on to Go and Erlang and Elixir and other things. And then I focused on infrastructure. That was the inflection point where I said I had a decision to make. Is it infrastructure or is it development? And I went to infrastructure for many, many years. Okay. So are there any ops or infrastructure stories worth telling from last year? Some bodies that you discovered maybe or some big battles that you fought and you won because everyone's still here? <laughs> Anything you know, like outages or migrations gone bad or backups that never restored. I don't know, anything like that. I don't know if we've had any major outages with the app itself, but most of the issues we run into are with third-party integrations. Can you give a few examples? Lately, it's been email. SendGrid? SCS? Mailgun, we actually have are trying to switch to SendGrid, which is bringing up other issues. Mailgun has just been having like issues with their... API or their SMTP server where it's just a bunch of emails are airing out and then mm -hmm. and then they had a major outage I think a couple of days ago which kind of prompted us to try to switch. That's been one of them. We we use Backblaze to to store the majority of our uh, audio files. So they're mm -hmm. their B2 service. They over the past couple of years they've had a number of issues where uploading to Backblaze is just incredibly slow. Like it'll take, you know, 10 minutes or more to upload like a 30 megabyte file yeah which is kind of ridiculous right so those happen in the background but they also you know if they take long enough our queuing system just backs up right i'm having the same issues by the way it's not just you and uh do you know what fixes it restarting restarting the upload fixes it but then because as you know the large files have multiple versions then you basically end up having all those files which started but never completed so then you have to clean okay. those yeah. And because they, they will they will count towards your storage. But that's something which I have noticed that if you, I basically control C, I just use the B2 CLI, upload, mm -hmm. you know, various, various files and large files. And when I do that, I always control C, start again, and it goes fast. And sometimes the most annoying part is when it gets like to 80%, and then it goes dog slow. And it can take easy, as you mentioned, 30 minutes. What? For like 100 megabytes? There were some times where like it was, it was pretty bad where people just couldn't upload. Uh, so customers were getting annoyed. We were getting annoyed. It had something to do with like the pod we were on in within their infrastructure that was mm -hmm. like something was degraded. And the storage pod. We have a lot of Kubernetes listeners. This is not a Kubernetes pod. It's a storage pod, a backplace <laughs> Stor storage pod. A, a just storage to clarify. Pod <laughs> so I think probably when you, know, when you notice yourself restarting an upload, it probably chooses like a different endpoint to upload through or something like that. We haven't really had many problems with them lately. I think they've kind of fixed a lot of that, at least from our, our perspective. Mm -hmm. Those have been the biggest. I mean, early on, this was before Jason, we had an issue with Caddy where it, it was trying to renew certificates with this mode that would not work through Elastic Beanstalk's load balancer. So mm -hmm. all of a sudden, like all of our certificates just expired, even the transistor FM one. And uh, so nothing worked for a while. And it was like, it was like the middle of the night. When was this? I think this was probably 2019, probably 2019. So not last year, no big outages last no, year. No, I don't think so. Yeah. I thought I just caught you there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. we're not that kind of a show, but please carry on. <laughs> no, I mean, with Caddy, it was, it, 
I basically was talking directly to Matt, the guy that created it. And uh, he helped me out and was basically like, yeah, run this, disable this method of, mm-hmm. you know, authorizing a certificate and it should work fine, which it did. So who was this? This was um, Matt. Matt Holt, the creator yeah, of Caddy. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. I was talking with him directly, basically. Matt, shout out to you. He was very friendly. Caddy's amazing. Yeah. A big stamp for me. I love it. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the benefits of having a, a big monolith, you know, big monolith app is like, it's a lot simpler. There's a lot less that can go wrong. So it's been relatively calm from our perspective, I think. I mean, we're not, we're mostly engineers and developers. We're not really ops people, mm-hmm. but we do it because we have to. We don't have a dedicated ops person. I don't know. I think we sometimes enjoy it. We sometimes enjoy it. It's like another challenge that you can conquer or whatever, right? It's like, I'm not going to. I'm not going to give up on this until it's finished and it's fixed mm-hmm. and it's working. Um, but it's not, it's definitely not our favorite part of running Transistor. <laughs> so what I'm hearing is that a handful of people do not need a dedicated ops person. They can do dev and ops while not focusing too much on ops. They don't need a platform team. They don't need a platform. They can have a bit of fun with it. And the mm-hmm. only requirement is to keep it simple. Do I hear it right? I think so. Sounds right. Okay. Hopefully nothing goes wrong during this recording because it's just Jason and I, so. <laughs> All right. If something was to go wrong, so this is very interesting. If something was to go wrong, how would you know that something went wrong? Well, we have, let's see, we have error notifications set up with Sentry that get posted into Slack. Okay. We have our customer support channel uh, through Crisp. And if something went wrong, people would start messaging us immediately or posting on Twitter. We've got some monitoring with yeah, Crisp we have some well. basic basic downtime monitoring or uptime. What do you use for that? Partially, it's Crisp actually has some built in. Amazon would also let us know, I think, if... Those emails? Yeah, if, if Elastic Beanstalk was... If something was happening, like the load balancer couldn't reach our EC2 instances, I think we'd get some notifications. I have also seen Cloudflare, especially mm-hmm. for your media and CDN. How does that fit? in the whole picture because that I'm assuming that's what's serving well now I've seen I'm not assuming I checked CDN Transistor FM it's advertising itself as Cloudflare where does that come in the mix that's our main audio and media CDN so audio files and all, most of the images are being served from Cloudflare by way of Backblaze so Backblaze okay. Backblaze and Cloudflare are part of the I think it's called the bandwidth initiative right yep. where like I remember that I loved when they announced it. Egress to Cloudflare is free from Backblaze. And then we're on a paid Cloudflare plan that allows mm-hmm. us to do a number of things with you know DNS and a bunch of configuration. So yeah, most of the heavy lifting for all the audio is through Cloudflare. I think that's a piece that we still want to work on. So that's one of the pieces, and I know Jason's kind of interested in taking this on, but that's one of the pieces that let's say our Rails app went down. Right now, it still depends on the Rails app to do a redirect after we record some information about the listener who downloaded the file. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are ways to get around that and sort of just have everything run through Cloudflare without having the need for the Rails app. So let's say the Rails app went down, like the RSS feeds are also cached in Cloudflare. Mm-hmm. If the audio files were to also not need the Rails app, then the app could go down and people could still listen to the podcast. But today, if it goes down, that, that doesn't happen. That would not happen. Okay. Because I have seen, so this is the media.transistor.fm. There's a redirect. There's a location being sent. Yeah. And okay, I get it. And then even though it, it comes through Cloudflare, that must be like a proxy, like a pass-through. Cloudflare just forwards a request. If the origin or the backend is not up, it can't serve. It can't service the request. And it's that redirect uh, to CDN. The redirect happens on in Rails, yeah. Yeah. Okay, got it. Cloudflare is pulling from Backblaze, so yeah. If I guess if Backblaze went down too and the file wasn't cached in Cloudflare, then we'd have some issues. But okay, okay. I remember when we put uh, a CDN in front of the of the main app, and you know if the app is down, the CDN will stay will serve stale requests. In our case, it's Fastly. Mm. Now it doesn't obviously service the dynamic requests. You know, it doesn't know how to process a post or right. but it's mostly the posts that it, it can't do anything about. So those will error. And I think we still serve, like, for example, our news, like our impressions. 
you know, when someone, you know, clicks a link, like to see, you know, how many people clicked a link, for example. But that's all like our own. We don't forward that to anywhere. You know, it's just within our own uh, stats. And that's, you still uses the app. But apart from that, if the app is down, it's all good. We just serve a stale cache. Okay. Yeah. Now, what if the CDN goes down? What happens then? I'm curious, in your case, if Cloudflare goes down. We were just talking about this yesterday, actually. It wouldn't actually be that hard for us to switch to a different CDN if we had to. I think really all we would have to do is update the redirect in the Rails app to point to a different CDN mm-hmm. uh, domain and then fire up a CDN that reads from Backblaze. So we could we could switch to Fastly or StackPath or even use CloudFront, all of which are much more expensive than Cloudflare. But uh, I think if we had to, we'd be okay pretty quickly. Okay, that's interesting. Hopefully Cloudflare doesn't go down because it runs half the internet at this point. But Well, you'd be surprised. Yeah. <laughs> they did have a few hiccups along, along the years. As did Fastly, by the way. We had our first outage, first Fastly outage in five years last year. We mm-hmm. did like a whole episode on it. And it wasn't just us, the BBC, New York Times, uh, The Guardian, so many, you know, much bigger sites went down. No, it wasn't yeah. just us. We got back up in 21 minutes. They didn't. So anyways, there's a whole episode where we talk about this. And it was a sunny day, not too dissimilar from this one. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah, moving on. <laughs> How much traffic do you serve in a month through Cloudflare? And I wouldn't ask you this if I wasn't prepared to trade you our numbers, the changelog.com numbers. Uh, let's see, on average, I think it's like... In total. So in a month, like for example, in the month of May, how much traffic did Cloudflare serve? I could look it up, but I think it was like 750 terabytes. 750 te- Wow, that's 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 a lot. Okay. I think that's on the lower level too. We actually, I actually talked to another, um, mm-hmm. I don't know if he was, I think he might be the CTO or of a different podcasting company that also runs Rails and also uses Cloudflare. And they were like in the multiple petabytes a month, which is kind of wild. Really? Wow. That's big. Okay. So for us, it's 45 gigabytes. Okay. Yeah. That's a big difference. Okay. That's <laughs> not the reaction I was expecting though. It's 45 terabytes. Seriously. It's <laughs> oh, not gigabytes. It's terabytes. <laughs> terabytes. still. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, like an order of magnitude and a bit. One and a half. I platform has been great. I mean, I, I can't speak for Jason, but I, I think they've been great. They keep adding really cool features that we haven't really used, but. Which is your favorite Cloudflare feature gone? I'm very curious. Oh, I don't know. I mean, we have just haven't even used so many of them that. The one that you use and that you love. I mean, we just use the CDN, really. We were, we were looking at pages. Yeah, we were looking at pages and then there's Cloudflare workers. I feel like we could probably do something with workers if we moved all the media stuff over to Cloudflare entirely. Those redirects, there's something there. Cloudflare pages and redirects, but I think there's something there. Yeah, I mean, it seems like you could build entire apps within Cloudflare now. But I don't think you would do that. Like, based on what I've heard, no, no. Rails is here to stay. Yeah, I mean, not not unless it made sense. I mean, if we wanted something to be running on Cloudflare that didn't require our Rails app to be up, then possibly. But I don't think we necessarily have any ideas yet. There's definitely things that can make sense to run isolated. Like, the things I think about on the side is just like a like an audio processing like service so you just like ship it some metadata and it has access to the files like that would be interesting yeah works out as now so if you were to do one improvement no actually no no because i'm sure like there are few improvements are already in flight can you tell us the thing that you are improving that you're excited about whether it's the infrastructure whether it's the app whether it's the deployment the pipeline the tests anything really we made a small quality of life change recently like we were shipping automatically to staging but we did a manual deploy for production and now deployment to production is just a merge in git and it's been it's been nice it saves you 10 minutes of staring at the screen yeah it's been nice mm-hmm. okay <laughs> can be maybe your local configuration something that you know you went for ruby 2 and ruby 2 ruby 3 and you've seen some change or you're like you know building on top of something that you've done recently you know, things that you're looking forward to or that just happened that are recent, basically the, the improvements, the quality of life. It can be that, sure. I know one thing Jason worked on a little while ago was improving our 
importing process for a podcast. So when you sign up for Transistor and you want it and you're coming from a different provider, you can drop in your RSS feed and it'll import the entire podcast for you into Transistor. Previously, that was happening synchronous, like all at once. It was basically just like a background job was running and importing everything all at once. Sometimes that took a couple of minutes for a small podcast. Sometimes it took an hour, right, for mm-hmm. a big podcast. And it was just something running in Sidekick for an hour. Jason split that up so that it basically did everything asynchronously. So that it'll import the all the information from the feed, but then processing the episode just would just happen in a queue so that you could actually process multiple episodes at once for an import and it would finish. I don't it finished probably like ten times faster at least. This is probably one of the things you were you were alluding to when you were talking about background processing. Like even with sidekick, like running running something for an hour is is not great. And then you kind of have to look and see what's running before you deploy so you don't squash it and then not get the job back. So this is nice. Everything runs in under, you know, a minute or two. Yeah. Things can fail better. You can pick up where they left off. And previously it was like import would fail and it would sort of just like, it would let us know, but it would be stuck in a weird state. So a merge deploys straight to production. A big sidekick job was split into multiple smaller jobs, which complete quicker. I think if we have one more, that would be amazing. The other interesting thing about making imports faster and concurrent was that certain places are are not huge fans of you pulling five, six, seven audio files simultaneously. So we we have some very specific rate limiting for a service or two in there. Let's see, another one, another improvement we made? Or that you're thinking of making. That's maybe in the works. That also works. Well, I mean, back back to the Cloudflare discussion, that is one thing that we're thinking about, but would be a big change for us and, and an expensive change just because of the feature that we need in Cloudflare is actually part of their enterprise plan. But that that would have more to do with like improving podcast analytics, making making analytics collection and audio serving like independent of the Rails app. Yeah, I know what you mean. That's going to be a bigger change, but it's something that Jason and I have talked about a lot and I think Jason's excited to work on, but we're going to, you will just have to figure out like if it makes sense to make that jump and when. I also think that might be something that might not be Rails, but we'll have to. Jason's also a big fan of Go, so he wants to write some more stuff in Go. We've got a small tool now, but it's um, it's for uh, developer usage to build. Receiver CLI? It is. That's correct. It was originally the, the experiment that we kicked off to make a standalone application to serve to serve the websites. And it used a Go, a Go-like version of Liquid Template Engine. But ultimately, like we rebuilt that in the Rails app. But this gives gives people the ability to develop locally, like the whole your whole array of a li- like the liquid templates that go into a theme and see what that looks like against the production environment before submitting it. So we're flirting with the idea of in the future letting folks build their own themes with Liquid. But right now they're just kind of embedded in the application. But there's no good way to build a new theme for somebody that's not like in doesn't have the Rails app spun up. So this gives you the ability to do that. Moment of truth. How long does a code change take to make it into production? From commit to production. It got worse <laughs> recently. It's because of your <laughs> tests, Jason. You have to stop writing tests. <laughs> That's what it is. <laughs> it can be a matter of minutes, really. I mean, we deploy multiple times a day sometimes. I think what Jason was alluding to was the upgrade we made on Amazon, on AWS, when we upgraded our Elastic Beanstalk version. We switched load balancer types. And for some reason, when we deploy to production now, takes like 15 minutes or more to finish the deployment and all of it is due to the like the deregistration registration of the instances behind the load balancer is just slow as hell with two instances on one instance on staging it's fine it takes like a minute network load balancer registration is slow for whatever reason there's like a bunch of configuration that is supposed to work and doesn't well essentially i mean it's it's rotating machine. So because with a single instance, I think it just throws up its hands and says you're going to have an outage. And with multiple machines, it deregisters, waits for it to deregister. And then 
upgrades that machine and then puts it back in. So that that process takes forever. Those timeouts are supposed to be configurable, but don't seem to do anything. And like you said, we're not ops experts. We're not AWS experts by any means. So like, it's possible we're missing something. I don't know, but you know, there's there's people we could talk to. But it was Jason like banged his head on that for a long time trying to fix it, and just we're just like, well, we're just going to go with this. So <laughs> if we sped that up, you could get code changes out in a matter of minutes. Mm-hmm. How long do the tests take to run? It's a pretty fast test suite. And how many do you have? If you have two, then that's okay. <laughs> no, it's like 30 seconds. I mean, it's 30 seconds. Okay. Are these integration tests or is it just unit tests? What type of tests do you have? Uh, it's all unit. That's a good question. I don't know how many we have. I think I want to like say 700 like tests or something. Yeah, something like okay. that. Yeah, we have something like that. If you hunt like up to a thousand roughly last time I looked, 600 and something it was for us. Okay. I mean, we, we try to keep them quick. Usually when I start somewhere, I'm like one of one of the first things I work on is like trying to speed up specs. They're like, there'll be a couple that are sitting there at 30 seconds, but the whole, the whole suite runs has, has always run well under a minute. You said specs. Yep. And that <laughs> reminds me of our spec. I love yep. that thing. Like That's even right. to this day, I haven't seen like something better than our spec. Seriously, the DSL, the simplicity. That's one thing which I miss from the Ruby world. You might be surprised at the DSL now. It has changed significantly, but also very nice. In a better way? I think so. There was like all there was like a lot of dot should stuff quite some time ago, but now they've gotten rid of that. Less magic. How long does the app take to boot? Because Rails was known for slow boot times for a long time. This was a decade ago. Maybe it sped up. Maybe Ruby 3 sped up. Yeah, it's improved over time. It only takes a couple seconds. Really? Seconds? Yeah, it's quick. Wow. Yeah. And even like to start serving requests, that's okay. That was Go. I mean, Go takes, you know, like no time at all. You know, like <laughs> like within a second, it's it's ready. Rails used to take 30 seconds, a minute. That was normal, you know, to load everything, to, you know, okay. It's improved. Yeah. Okay, good. I remember those days. The first time I, I ran a Go web server, I had to look up what the symbol meant because it was it like for the timing. Yeah. Because it's like what exactly. it, microseconds or something like that. <laughs> Nanoseconds even in some cases. <laughs> exactly. It's like, <laughs> like it's there. You know? Okay. This episode is brought to you by Sourcegraph. With the launch of their Code Insights product, teams can now track what really matters in their code base. Code Insights instantly transforms your code base into a queryable database to create visual dashboards in seconds. And I'm here with Joel Kortler, the product manager of Code Insights for Sourcegraph. Joel, the way teams can use Code Insights seems to pretty much be limitless, but a particular problem every engineering team has is tracking versions of languages or packages. How big of a deal is it actually to track versions for teams? Yeah, it's a big deal for a couple of reasons. The first is, of course, just compatibility. You don't want things to break when you're testing locally or to break on your CI systems, your test systems. You need to have some sort of level of like version unification and minimum version support and all of that needs to be you know, compatible forward. But the other thing we learned was that for a lot of customers, especially you know, engineering organizations that are pretty established, they have older versions of things or even older versions of like SaaS tools they don't use anymore that they haven't fully removed because they're like not sure if it's still in use or they you know lost focus on that. And they're spinning up old virtual machines that they're still paying for. Or they're using you know old SaaS subscriptions they're afraid to cancel because they're not sure if anyone's actually using it. And so getting off of those versions not just like saves you the headaches and the risks and the vulnerabilities of being on old versions, but also literally the money of you know, older systems running more slowly or the build times or, you know, virtual machines and SaaS tools that you're no longer using. Before you had this ability, we talked to teams, there are basically three ways you could do this. You could slack a million people and ask for just like an update point in time. You could have sort of one human and one spreadsheet where like it's somebody's job every Friday or every two weeks to just like search all the code and find all the versions and write it down in a Google sheet. Or there were a couple of companies that I came across with in-house systems that were sort of complicated. You had to know, you know, maybe Kotlin, but you didn't 
didn't know Kotlin, but if you wanted to use this system, you had to learn Kotlin and you'd have to sort of build the whole world from scratch and run basically a tool like this with a pretty steep learning curve. And now for all three of those, you could replace it with a single line source graph search, which is basically just the name of the thing you're trying to track and the version string in the right format. And then we have templates that'll help you get started if you're not sure what that format is. And then it'll automatically track all the different versions for you, both historically. So even if you start using it today, you can see your historical patterns. And then of course, going forward. Very cool. Thank you, Joel. So right now there is a treasure trove of insights just waiting for you living inside your code base right now. Teams are tracking migrations, adoption, deprecations. They're detecting and tracking versions of languages and packages. They're removing or ensuring the removal of security vulnerabilities. They understand their code by team. They can track their code smells and health, and they can visualize configurations and services and so much more with Code Insights. A good next step is to go to about.sourcegraph.com slash code dash insights. See how other teams are using this awesome feature. Again, about.sourcegraph.com slash code dash insights. This link is in the show notes. And by Flatfile, the leading data onboarding platform for teams who don't want to build yet another CSV uploader. Think of the last time you had to import data from a spreadsheet. You probably got some weird errors. You had to try a bunch of things like removing blank titles from rows and column headers. You probably had to find and replace special characters. You might even had to reach for Google to remind yourself yet again how to save with UTF-8 encoding. Here's the thing, you're just trying to get your file where it needs to go so you can do the thing you're trying to do in the first place. And your customers run into this same issue when it matters most, right after signing up for your product and getting started. The thing you're building, the product, is brought to life by data, your customer's data, the data they recognize, and every minute they spend trying to fix a spreadsheet, just like you were doing, is one minute less seeing the magic of the product, the thing you're building, the thing they just bought, and they're so excited to use. Now, companies of all sizes struggle with this issue. They don't realize that there's a solution out there, and they've accepted this as par for the course, optimizing for other ways to improve the customer experience. Some go as far as creating downloadable CSV templates and building their own in-house file importer. Then they send their customers to a lengthy knowledge base article on how to use it, and it just circumvents the entire process of getting started. Enter Flatfile. Flatfile is the data onboarding platform built to take the acute pain out of importing customer data into your product. With Flatfile, your product's experience is world-class on day one. It's built to handle everything from data mapping, field validation, and is meticulously designed to blend right into your platform. It turns a frustrating process for everyone into a delightful first experience for your customers. Flatfile is SOC 2 Type 1 and Type 2 certified, GDPR compliant, and even HIPAA compliant. This ensures no matter where customers are in the world, they're sharing data securely and in compliance every step of the way. The next step is to learn more and check them out at flatfile.com. Again, flatfile.com. Is there a service that you couldn't live without, like in your stack, something that you use that you could not do without? FFmpeg. <laughs> FFmpeg. Okay. Yeah. That's the bread and butter. Okay. FFmpeg. Yeah. That's a good one, Jason. That would make everything very difficult. It's funny too, because when I when I started, I don't, I haven't done any audio stuff. I haven't really spent any time looking at podcasting. I'm looking at FFmpeg, and I'm like, there's got to be a better way to do some of this than shell out to this tool. And not, there absolutely is not. Yeah. <laughs> FFmpeg is great. Turns out it's the best tool for everything. It is kind of amazing. Like, I mean, obviously we, we rely on FFmpeg, but like, it's kind of amazing that all this software is just open source for us to use. None of this would be possible if all these libraries weren't in existence and we couldn't just use them. And so I don't know. It's I kind of, it's just like, I sometimes when I think about that, it's like kind of amazing that we can get away with building a company that provides us a living built on free software. Yeah. Right. I'm pretty sure you just said open, open source is amazing. And I, yeah. I don't think anyone disagrees with that. I mean, oh my yeah. goodness, we changed our yeah. lives for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm glad that you mentioned FFmpeg because uh, there's something that we've been working on for a while. And uh, Jared and Lars, they have all the details. I think we're very close to stop using FFmpeg and rewrite everything that we need in Elixir 
as library, like an ID3 for the tagging. And we actually even have an episode where we talk about it, what the plan is. But we're not far off from actually... You'll have to point us to that episode or put it in the show notes because we're, we're looking at tagging, which is challenging. Oh, yeah. Now, you'll need to switch to Elixir from, from Ruby. Phoenix. Is there a good built-in tagging library? Did you build it? We are building it. It's not finished. All right. I'm convinced it's going to be open source because we don't do anything else other than open source. There's no closed source at what we do. The infrastructure, the setup, everything is out there. And we talk about it extensively. We blog about it. And this will also, as soon as it's ready, it will come out. Now, this is episode 61 by the time listeners are listening to it, which means that the Kaizen 6, episode 60, came out. Every 10 episodes, we talk about the improvements that we do, change log, whether it's the infrastructure, whether it's the upside, whether, you know, all the, all the improvements that we do. That's why they're called the Kaizens, the concept of a continuous improvement. And we mention it in episode 50, and I think we're going to mention it again in episode 60. It's not ready to be shipped yet, but by episode 70, we should be in a better place. And I know FFmpeg, it's such a huge dependency and it's the one thing which, you know, we just need to install ourselves. And there's, you know, it's just complicated in a number of ways. But it's also so powerful. Were you using it mostly just for tagging or conversion? Or think it's just tagging. I don't think we convert anything. Okay. I think the episodes, when they get uploaded, they're already in MP3 format. Do you do conversion? We do, yeah. Multiple different types, really. I mean, we don't use FFmpeg for tagging at the moment. We're using a Ruby library that is super old and has, I don't know, it'll never be updated. And we might be switching. To we let people upload audio in Wave, MP3, M4A. We, up, we actually let people upload video files now that all get converted to MP3. And then on the flip side of that, if, if someone uses the YouTube integration, which automatically uploads their episode to their YouTube channel, it will actually convert it from MP3 to... I think it's an mp4 video file with like a background image interlaced at like one frame per second or something like that uh, and then it uploads it to the youtube api so yeah all that i remember that i was like there was one feature that i think uh was it i forget her name not holly the fourth person oh helen helen I knew it was an H, but I didn't know how it, how it continued. Okay, Helen, <laughs> thank you. So Helen was mentioning about uh, that feature. I think it was in YouTube, in episode 135. I, I hear her speak about that. You know, what was it like launching it? It's, it's you know, working on it, so on and so forth. So I remember that, and that's something new, which I didn't know that Transistor FM did, in that, you know, you can upload your podcast to YouTube as well, because there is a lot of benefit to having podcasts on YouTube on top of all the other platforms that Transistor FM supports. And is, is that Justin? Is that Justin's idea? Because he's onto something. I don't know. I, that, we've had that around for a while. I don't remember how it came about. Yeah, I don't know. It might have been a collaboration. I, Justin's big on video. He's big. I mean, he, he talks about YouTube a lot and how it's a huge platform for podcasting now. Mm, I agree. Which I think is surprising to me, at least, because I don't really watch podcasts or listen to mm. music or audio on YouTube, but I, I know like plenty of people do. It's very convenient, especially if you have YouTube premium. I know that Elon Musk doesn't have YouTube premium. That was a, a very interesting tweet <laughs> that came out a few, few weeks ago. I've been using it for a few years now, and I used to have YouTube music as well. And I can either watch any conference talk on YouTube, and when you have premium, you just put it in the background so you listen to it. And then if you do that and you're already subscribed to like a bunch of, you know, channels which do conferences, like usually conference channels, then you can subscribe to podcast channels as well because it's all there. And then because the background listening works, you don't have to have it running. Uh, music as well, you know, you can have video and audio and then it does like that nice switch between quality. So it is a go-to destination and it's like all in a single place and it's convenient, right? So if you pay for YouTube premium, why wouldn't you use it for podcasts as well? And if you want to see their faces, you can do that. Like, I, I think it's a good idea. The reactions and the emotions behind, you know, people talking. I think, I think it is, it is becoming an increasingly important element, especially since, you know, in the last few years, everything changed. It's uh, not that common to work with all the people in the same place. And Zoom and Discord and Slack, it's the norm these days. We end up being in the browser or, you know, an app. Yeah. I mean, that's how we operate. Talking heads. <laughs> the four of us have all never gotten together. So we're going to do never? that this fall. Fine. Never. Wow. Do you plan to? 
In October, we're going to get together, all four of us, finally. Whereabouts? In Montreal. Okay. We sort of triangulated the central spot between us. It's sort of a central point for all of us. Okay. So yeah, that'll be fun to finally, finally hang out together. What's October like in Montreal? Is it nice? Uh, we'll see. I don't know. Okay. I think it's okay. <laughs> Let me know. What's it like? I've never been. Maybe chilly. From what we what we read, it's a lot less tourists, so that'll be good. Okay. Weather-wise, I don't know. It could be, could be anything really. Okay. Who knows these days? And are you taking a whole week? What's the plan? Yeah, we're gonna do a week. Okay. And just uh, you know, hang out, talk about the future of the company, maybe plan some stuff. Um, just kind of see how it goes. Just spend a bunch of time together. Got to get a whiteboard. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> whiteboard some things. <laughs> that is a good idea. Well, I am involved this week with with an offsite with a team offsite, and uh, the hotel was very important to have a meeting room so we can all meet at the same place. We don't have to travel anywhere. It was important obviously to have breakfast, a nice breakfast, so that we can have breakfast, then we can start the meeting. Whiteboard. I made a special request, make sure it has a whiteboard and a TV so that we can, you know, show some slides or, you know, have a bit of fun if we want to. And split the days. Have a bit of fun, have a bit of work, you know, have a bit of alone time. People want to hack on things. So yeah, I mean that's like top of my mind right now because that's what's been happening these past few weeks and what's going to happen for us next week. Cool. Yeah, I'm looking I'm looking forward to it. It's kind of amazing how well it's worked out without us meeting. You know, I've met, I've hung out with Jason before, obviously a bunch, and hung out with Justin before, never met Helen. I didn't, because of COVID, I didn't see Justin for probably two years or more, um, more than two years. We were going to try to get together in the spring of 2020, and that was canceled. And then it was just like, I finally met up with him in Canada January of this year for the first time since like 2019 which is crazy. Wow. But we just couldn't because like, yeah, Americans couldn't go to Canada. Yeah. We just weren't allowed. Mm -hmm. But it, it is, I mean, it's amazing how well it's worked out, really, having everyone be remote. My impression is that you being such a chill bunch has something to do with it. You come through as very relaxed, very easygoing. You know, I can imagine, I cannot imagine any drama, even if the app goes down. Yeah, we'll fix it. And then five minutes later, it's fixed. <laughs> something like that. That's how I imagine an outage happening. Yeah, there really, there really hasn't been any. I mean, yeah, I don't think there's been much drama. Have you, Jason? No, this is this is the least dramatic place I've ever worked. I mean, if it goes down, it like it sucks. But generally, like if we explain it well enough to the customers who are asking about it, they like they understand, which is kind of great. No one's like, oh, give me my money back and all this stuff. It's like, what if the backblaze pod gets deleted and all the MP3s get lost? <laughs> <laughs> what happens then? Yeah, that could be a problem. <laughs> yeah, but you're thinking like the worst thing. So do you have a backup for Backblaze? A backup for the backup? You know, the first rule of backups, restore them. The second rule, have a backup. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think there's a backup in place. We should check that. They have a new replication feature too. Yes. Which just came out. I was meant to be to test it. I just did not have time for that. One thing which, sorry, Backblaze, I really meant to. If you're listening to this, I really did. <laughs> that would be the probably the most catastrophic thing that could happen. If you think I mean, about the worst thing and you're prepared for it, it'll be good. The database is, you know, backed up and multi, multi uh, zone and all that stuff. But mm -hmm. um, obviously, okay. the codes in GitHub and all the, you know, yeah, losing the most important part of the podcast would probably be a big problem. <laughs> so we used to have a backup of our backup, but not anymore. And that's something which I'll need to look into. I mean, AWS S3 is what stores all our MP3s. We do not back them up. That's it. It's just that. Now, we do have them in a couple of places, Dropbox, things like that. And I know that we have like a bunch of them, not all of them, but a lot of them, you know, are around. But what we need to do is obviously back up the backup. We know it restores, but we don't have another backup. And maybe we go to Backblaze and or R3. That's an interesting one. I was going to ask about that, but we can leave it for another episode. Because as we prepare to wrap up, what I'm wondering is your most important takeaway for the people that stuck with us all the way to the end. Jason, do you want to go first? <laughs> I mean, I think like you said before, or at least like what our team is doing, keep it simple if you can. I've definitely worked on much more complex infrastructure. I've worked on teams that have pager duty installed and everybody does weekly shifts. This app is, is easy, easy to maintain, easy to know 
what we've built. There's not a lot of, there's not a lot of failure points and it's been, it's been great. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. Keep it simple. Expect things to go wrong. If they do go wrong, try to stay calm and don't point the finger at anybody because it's everyone's issue. And at the end of the day, it's also like probably not that big of a deal. And then hire people that you get along with. How do you do that? I think that requires another episode. How do you hire people that you get That's along with? That's a good with? question. I don't know. I've only <laughs> hired friends. you don't until you hire them. Yeah. <laughs> I'll hire friends. <laughs> hire friends. Okay. Uh, that's probably a tough one. I don't really have an answer for that, but it makes a huge difference because you're going to be working with those people every day. If you can get into an argument or a discussion and not, you know, yell at each other and find some common ground, it's definitely better to do that with people you can enjoy being around. Does hiring slowly have something to do with it? Because you hired slowly, right? You've grown slowly. You've taken your time. You haven't like two X in two months. Yeah, I don't we have never really wanted to do that. I mean, that didn't really appeal to Justin and I. Like neither of us really want to manage people necessarily. I mean, Jason and Helen kind of, you know, they manage themselves for the most part. Like they're not, you know, we're not like holding their hand and telling them what to do and counting the hours they work and all that stuff. But yeah, I mean it, you know, we hired kind of when we felt like we had to or felt like it was really the right time. And even that was a tough decision, but I don't think we really want to get that much bigger either. You know, we're not going to like immediately take funding and hire a hundred people. Like that would change this company so much that it wouldn't even be recognizable. I think there's a lot of it there. The calmness, the easygoingness, the, you know, you're doing this to improve your quality of life. I remember Justin, you know, keep mentioning this, like you're doing this, you're doing Transistor FM for a reason. And the reason is to have a good life, to enjoy life, to take things easy. You know, that that's what you're optimizing for. And then guess what? Things are easy. <laughs> There's no drama. Things are yeah. quiet. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, it's, I think that was a decision. Yeah. Even day to day, it's like, I built this and Justin built this because we wanted to, you know, have a calmer life and be able to take breaks. And I think we extend that on to Jason and Helen too. You know, it's like, even during the day, it's like, well, I'm just, I, I need to take a break or take the rest of the day off and do something else. And that's totally fine. It has come in handy with a toddler in a COVID infected world. <laughs> yeah. It has its, it had its challenges the last few years. Okay. Well, what I can say, gentlemen, is that I enjoy this very much. Thank you very much for your time. I cannot wait to have you back to hear more stories from Transistor FM. I think it may be a while because things are happening yeah. very calmly, very gently, yeah. you know, on your <laughs> end. And that's a great thing. There's no drama. We'll try to document all of the uh, massive issues we have if they come up. Yeah. But it's also like, you know, like things, like interesting things, because things are happening so slowly and so calmly. There's no big, oh, outage this, outage that, or this went down, or, you know, you upgrade when you definitely have to. You don't push the boundaries that much because why you create issues for yourself? You don't Kubernetes. I haven't heard that's mentioned once apart from what I mentioned it. No interest in that beast, you know, to tackle it. And um, you're keeping, you know, simple tech that works, that has proven itself that, you know, there's so many experienced people in this. And apparently it's great for serving hundreds of terabytes per month. It works. I love that. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, John. Looking forward to next time. Have a great one. Thank you. Same. Have a good one. Thank you for tuning into another episode of Ship It. Check out our other podcasts for developers at changelog.com slash master. You can connect with like-minded developers via changelog.com slash community. Thank you Fastly for the worldwide low-latency changelog.com. Our listeners love those blazing fast MP3s. Your beats are awesome, Breakmaster Cylinder. That's it for this week. See you all next week. In next week's episode, we'll be talking to someone that writes code in vanilla Vim. He pushes the simple and straightforward to the extreme. Wait until you hear what he does with his infra and ops. There are no acts in his production.